This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great pleasure tonight to welcome you all here and to be just a few moments uh, before you hear Professor Chatterjee's talk on the black hole of empire. Professor Chatterjee is Professor of Political Science uh, uh, in, uh, in India, uh, but has also been a Professor of Anthropology at Columbia University. Uh, he comes to us tonight uh, from New York. He's a distinguished historian and theorist of colonial and national history. We are all in for a great intellectual treat. Professor Chatterjee was born in Calcutta in 1947, precisely the same year that India gained independence from British rule. And just three years before the India Republic and a new constitution came into effect. He left India as a young man to study here in the United States. He completed a PhD in political science at the University of Rochester in 1972, but I'm told that he always intended to go back, which in fact is what he did and where he has lived his life. As a scholar who speaks to us tonight as one of the founding members of Subaltern Studies, Professor Chatterjee began his academic career studying, wait for this, international relations and nuclear war strategies in the political science department at Rochester, using rational choice theory to construct game theoretic models of arms races. Since then, in a real turn, Professor Chatterjee has published many academic works, some of which I'll touch on tonight. They are the Politics of the Governed, Reflections on Popular Politics in Most of the World, recently in 2004, A Possible e India, Essays in Political Criticism in 1997, The Nation and Its Fragments, Colonial and Post-Colonial Histories, 1993, and Nationalist Thought and the Colonial World, A Derivative Discourse. But just in case you think that Professor Chatterjee is just a dry academic, he also has a lyrical turn of mind. Recently, he's written a book called A Princely Imposter, The Strange and Universal History of the Kumar Wawal, which is a narrative history of Bengal. He's also written seven plays, all in Bengali. He writes music. In fact, I understand has been awarded several prizes for music competition. And he's a movie star. He appeared <laughs> just this year in a movie called The Namesake. Namesake. I'm not sure if one appearance makes you a movie star, but in the academic setting, it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Chatterjee shows us how theory can shake up and radically alter the framework within which we see our world. And he opens up new possibilities for knowledge 
if we're willing to challenge the assumptions by which we live. Subaltern Studies is Professor Chatterjee's vehicle. Well, what is Subaltern Studies and how does it connect with the work of Professor Chatterjee? The term subaltern was first coined by Italian Marxist Gramsci and it refers to any person who has inferior status or rank in life, whether that's class, race, gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity or religion. In the context of Professor Chatterjee's work, this has particularly taken a focus on agrarian structures and peasant movement, movements, subalterns in other words, as agents of social and political change. In other words, it's the idea of approaching history from below, focusing more on what happens among the masses at the base level of society rather than the elites. Subaltern studies began as a group of historians in India who felt that Indian history was limited, framed by a nationalist perspective. This perspective was claiming to be total and comprehensive. But in fact, Professor Chatterjee challenges why this should be so. He says the perspectives and voices of those outside the centers of power, peasants, workers, tribal people, and women, have been neglected. And subaltern studies attempts to listen to these voices so as to see radical ways of reconstructing history. Chatterjee's question to us is, why do nation states in the third world, which became independent with such high ideals, why have they been unable to re fully realize their promise of emancipation and freedom of their citizens? After all, they achieved full nationalist freedom under the rubric of Western European Enlightenment theory of the freedom of the individual and with constitutions. And those constitutions were supposed to free all as equal members and citizens of society. Part of the problem, Professor Chatterjee argues, is that while we see nationalism as being completely opposite of colonialism, the former paradigm with which colonial peoples were subjugated, in fact, he argues, all that post-colonial nationalism has done is to absorb its colonial thinking. In fact, all post-colonial nationalism is, if one isn't careful, is the incubus of colonialism lying within it. Three main works that I'll touch on very briefly, two of which really capture Professor Chatterjee's work on nationalism. His first major study, 1986, Nationalist Thought in the Colonial World, a Derivative Discourse, summarizes his critique of the underlying causes of nationalism. The idea that they really or their origin is in the Enlightenment. Their, their ideals are Enlightenment ideas of reason, progress, and science. Post-colonial nationalism promises to free subjugated people from their colonial yokes, but it simply carries over the bureaucracy of the old colonial state. 
For example, in India, the British Raj, as it was, became newly free India. The district administrations that were dealing with rural people simply continued in their old form. Courts continued in the old way as they'd been formed by the British Raj. Rural landowners continued as privileged people. In other words, it was business as usual, but with a new label called freedom. Freedom as a new national constitutional order. Chatterjee's point here is that even though the nation state, the new post-colonial nation state, might seem to be supporting its post-colonial peoples in ways that are new, ways that are changed from their old order. In fact, the post-colonial person, the citizen, has just been trained, trained to reproduce the old orders of power, and even more perniciously, simply trained to only believe there's only one way of being governed and governing. That is the way of the British colonial state. So, Chatterjee points out, instead of making a new state, the post-colonial state simply adapts or usually expands the former colonial state. The problem with this <coughs> is that it means that political consent of citizens can't really be political consent because citizens aren't really citizens. They haven't really stepped in to their own political power. They've just stepped in to the old charade of the past. Taking his starting point from that position, Chatterjee argued in 1993 in a book called The Nation and Its Fragments, Colonial and Post-Colonial Histories, how nationalists had divided their material and spiritual domains. And in fact, post-colonial nationalists had simply effectively carried on the way that the colonists had also inhabited the colonial spirituality. Chatterjee shows how middle-class elites first imagined the nation through the spiritual realm, that would be religion, caste, women, family and peasants, and then projected it into the political realm. Colonization was complete <coughs> under the rubric of a new nation state. <coughs> Most recently in 2004, Chatterjee's work, The Politics of the Governed, Reflections on Popular Politics in Most of the World, his argument is that the growth of democracy in the post-colonial world contrary to most of the discourse and rhetoric out there, doesn't really depend on civil society, as it's called. Civil society, dangerously, winds up becoming the voice of the elite, and the voice of the elite are based usually in cities, and they're simply reproducing the old patterns of the past, patterns of subjugation. Rather, it's increasingly focusing on the rural and the urban poor, as the political society. That's the hope for the future, making the marginal population groups really have political consent and really step in to their citizenship. 
It's a particularly apt theme for us right now. If you've been following the events in Pakistan, you will know that just today one in four lawyers is either under arrest or is under house arrest and has been charged under anti-terrorism legislation. In fact, 344 lawyers out of some 1,000 lawyers who were arrested in Lahore, in Pakistan yesterday, have been presented to an anti-terrorism court. So whether it's a post-colonial nation that finds itself going through ructions and ruptures about the definition of the rule of law, or whether it's a formerly colonizing nation, such as France, which in 2005, in October 2005, found that disaffected youth, many of whom were Muslim second or third generation immigrant men, young men, were rioting through Paris and Strasbourg, setting cars alight and destroying public buildings. The stain of colonial history is upon Europe, it's upon the formerly colonized world, and we can see it today in the terrorist and security concerns. It's a matter which is timely, and I ask you to welcome Professor Chatterjee. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Stacy, for that extremely generous introduction. And I'm indeed very honored to have been asked to speak on this occasion. I am also aware that this is meant to be some kind of uh, opening uh, event for the conference on uh, ethnicity in today's Europe, which is opening tomorrow. Um, the, the organizers assured me that I don't really have to speak to that topic. Uh, and I couldn't because I cannot pretend, even pretend, any expertise on that subject. However, uh, what I will talk to you about, which is historical, uh, which will largely deal with uh, uh, the story of an event some 250 years ago, uh, may have some relevance to uh, questions of ethnicity in today's Europe and may have some uh, bearing on the topics that are concerning us so much these days. So uh, here we go. The mythical history of the British Empire in the East begins in a black hole. In the evolutionary history of stars, the black hole as a theoretical construct, black hole is a theoretical construct. Scientists tell us that most of the properties of the black hole cannot be directly observed. When the core matter of a star cools, contracts, and collapses into a black hole, the space-time around it is so sharply curved that no light escapes, no matter is ejected, and all details of the imploding star are obliterated. An outside observer cannot associate any meaningful sense of time with the interior events. 
The black hole of Calcutta has a somewhat similar status in the history of modern empires. I'm not sure how many of you in this audience have heard of the black hole. 50 years ago, it was known to every school child in Britain. In fact, it was said that if a person in the English-speaking world knew only one thing about India, it was likely to have been the infamous black hole incident. In 1947, a psychologist from Teachers College, Columbia University, asked 115 senior college students in New York City about the incident, and about one third knew something about it. Today, I would be surprised if even one out of a out of a hundred knows anything about the black hole of Calcutta. So, what was it, and what happened inside it? Delhousie Square is the heart of the administrative district of Calcutta. On the western side of the square stands one of the more distinctive buildings of colonial Calcutta, the General Post Office, built in the classical style with Corinthian columns and a Renaissance dome. High up on the eastern wall of the post office, there is a small plaque. It says somewhat obscurely, the brass lines in the adjacent steps and pavement mark the position and extent of part of the southeast bastion of old Fort William, the extreme southeast point being 95 feet from this wall. The brass lines are difficult to find, but along one of the lower steps, there is a strip of what looks like wrought iron running southwards for a few yards and then coming to an abrupt stop. There is no further clue here to the mystery of the fort wall. Leading south from Delousy Square is Council House Street, which runs past the yard of St. John's Church. Built in 1787, it is one of the oldest churches in Calcutta and in a very poor state of repair. The churchyard has some of the oldest funerary architecture from British Calcutta, including the mausoleum of Job Charnock, who founded the first English settlement there. More to our interest, however, is a monument that stands near the western wall of the churchyard, surrounded by overgrown shrubs and piles of rubbish. It is a white marble obelisk on an octagonal base with inscribed tablets on six of its sides and a floral frieze on the other two. The main inscription reads as follows. This monument has been erected by Lord Curzon, Viceroy and Governor General of India in the year 1902 upon the site and in reproduction of the design of the original monument to the memory of 123 persons who perished in the black hole prison of Old Fort William on the night of the 20th of June, 1756. The former memorial was raised by their surviving fellow sufferer, J. Z. Holwell, governor of Fort William, on the spot where the bodies of the dead had been thrown into the ditch of the ravelin. It was removed in 1821. The next tablet has the names of 27 persons who Holwell originally listed as having died in the black hole. Two other tablets list 54 additional victims whose names had been, quote, recovered from oblivion by reference to contemporary documents. The memorial is actually in the wrong place because this is neither the site of the black hole prison nor where the bodies of the victims were allegedly thrown. At the base of the monument is another inscription. This monument was erected in 1902 by Lord Curzon on the original site of the black hole, northwest corner of Delazi Square, and removed thence 
to the cemetery of St. John's Church, Calcutta, in 1940. We are dealing then with two monuments. The original monument, by all accounts, was stood somewhere at the northeast, northwest corner of what was then called the Tank Square. We know from the records that the ruins of the old fort of Calcutta, including the site of the Black Hole Prison, were demolished in 1818. The Holwell Monument stood outside the walls of the old fort. It is not clear why the original monument was pulled down in 1821, but we do know that it was designed and built probably in 1760 by John Zephania Holwell, a survivor of the Black Hole Incident, to whom we owe the only detailed narrative of the event. The inscription on the front of the monument then had the names of 48 persons who, it was announced, quote, with sundry other inhabitants, military and militia, to the number of 123 persons, were by the tyrannic violence of Surajud Dola, Suba of Bengal, suffocated in the black hole prison of Fort William in the night of the 20th day of June 1756, and promiscuously thrown the succeeding morning into the ditch of the ravelin of this place. This monument is erected by their surviving fellow sufferer, J.Z. Holbeck. On the reverse of the monument, the inscription said, quote, this horrid act of violence was as amply as deservedly revenged on Surajuddaullah by His Majesty's arms under the conduct of Vice Admiral Watson and Colonel Clive, anno 1757. So what happened in Calcutta on that night? The center of Calcutta in 1756 was a small fort with earth and ballast bastions and brick walls. This was the fortified settlement of the East India Company in Bengal. The town had grown phenomenally in the first half of the 18th century and its total population in 1756 could have been in the region of 100,000. The British population probably numbered no more than 400, mostly male, a large part being soldiers. The Indian population lived in the black town north of the fort. The company had held from 1698 the three villages cons constituting Calcutta as the zamindar or landlord with the right to settle people and collect revenue. In 1717, the company secured from the Mughal em emperor permission to trade without paying customs duties. The Nawab of Bengal allowed the company's goods to be transported without duties but not those belonging to the company's officials. However, company servants routinely tried to carry out their private trade under the company's seal to evade customs charges. The company's settlement in Calcutta was steadily fortified through the first half of the 18th century, sometimes with the permission of the Nawab's government, but often without. The company's directors in London were always concerned about the need to defend their settlement in Bengal in order to protect their trade. Throughout the early 18th century, they sent repeated instructions to their officials in Bengal, quote, to make your fortifications strong enough to discourage or sustain any attempts of the Moors, but in as private a manner as you can. The private trade of company officials was a matter of much dispute. There is little doubt that for those who chose to sail to India in the company's service, the lure of a fortune acquired in a few years through private trade was the most powerful attraction because the actual pay was paltry, between 50 to 100 pounds annually. 
Most who came out from Britain hated the conditions in Bengal. Quote, they disliked the climate, they disliked the sicknesses that recurred so frequently, they disliked the blacks. But they all looked forward to returning home after 10 or 15 years with enough of a fortune to live free and independent like a gentleman. This could mean savings of something like 25,000 pounds acquired mainly through private trade that could allow one to live the life of a small squire. In 1750, the British position in Bengal became entangled in the extension of European ri political rivalries in Asia. The aggressive policies of the French governor Duplex in Pondicherry had led to major military and diplomatic successes over the British in South India, and now he was looking to Bengal. The British, however, were not slow to pick up the cue. Robert Orme, later the official historiographer of the conquest of Bengal, was advising Robert Clyde as early as 1752 to consider toppling Alivardi Khan, Nawab of Bengal. Quote, the Nawab coming down with all his excellency's cannon to Hooghly and with an intent to bully all the settlements out of a large sum of money, Clyde could be a good deed to swing the old dog. I don't speak at random when I say that the company must think seriously of it or it will not be worth their while to trade in Bengal. In April 1756, the 80-year-old Alivardi died. His grandson, Sirajuddaula, succeeded him and immediately demanded that the company stop any further fortification of Calcutta. The Nawab's emissary, however, was unceremoniously dismissed by Roger Drake, governor of Fort William. Humiliated, he returned to Murshidabad and complained, quote, what honor is left to us when a few traders who have not yet learned to wash their bottoms, reply to the ruler's order by expelling his envoy. Sirajuddaula, by all accounts, was enraged. The recent conflicts between the British and the French in South India and the subjugation of the rulers of Hyderabad and Arcot were known in Murshidabad, and it was reasonable for Siraj to think that he should not allow any of the Europeans to build fortified enclaves in Bengal. Siraj retaliated immediately. On 16th June 1756, the Nawab, personally reading, leading a force of some 30,000 men with heavy artillery, arrived in the vicinity of Calcutta. At Fort William, the number of armed men available to defend it was around 500, of whom no more than half were European, including soldiers, militia, and volunteers, the rest consisting of Armenians, Indo-Portuguese, and Indians. The Nawab's forces began an assault on all fronts on 16th June. After three days of battle, a majority of the council at Fort William was arguing in favor of abandoning the fort and retreating to the ships anchored in the river. Morale was desperately low, and quote, every black fellow who could make his escape ran away. On the night of 18th June, it was decided that the European women in the fort should be escorted to the boats waiting on the river. When the Nawab's army resumed its assault in the morning and the ship Dodali arrived up the river, river below the fort, there was a general desertion. Everyone who could find a place on a boat left. By noon, Governor Drake himself was gone, sailing downstream. Soon there were no more boats available, even though many, including eight members of the council, were still waiting in the fort, ready to leave. The defenders were stranded in the besieged fort. The governor himself, having ingloriously deserted, 
the remaining members of the council elected Holwell as governor of Fort William. But with so many senior officers gone, it was impossible to maintain discipline. Many European soldiers virtually mutinied, forcing their way into the stores, helping themselves to the liquor, and subsequently deserting in the night. On the 20th June, after further fighting, Holwell was left with no more than 150 men, demoralized and exhausted of strength and vigor. He signaled for a truce. By the evening, the fort was occupied by the Nawab's troops. Holwell was brought before Siraj Dola, who expressed much resentment against Drake. The Indo-Portuguese, Armenian, and Indian men in the fort were allowed to leave. The remaining Europeans were left in charge of the Nawab's guard. No violence was done to them. At this time, some of the Europeans, apparently under the influence of liquor, misbehaved with the guards, at least one of whom received fatal injuries. When this was reported, either the Nawab or one of his officers ordered that the Europeans be put in confinement within the fort. It was discovered that there was a cell picturesquely called the black hole that was used by fort officials to lock up unruly Europeans. This was where the European prisoners were confined during the night of 20th June. The first accounts of the black hole incident were produced between July 1756 and February 1757. The historian Brigen Gupta has carefully compiled a full list of 13 such sources that have come down to us. Gupta shows with, with impeccable reasoning that John Zephania Holwell was directly involved in the production of every single one of these narratives. That is to say, they are not independent pieces of evidence, but rather all of them the result of consultations with Holwell or, or of a reading of his various descriptions of the event. It is to Holwell's narrative, then, that we must turn, as indeed has everyone else in the last 250 years, for an account of what happened on the night of 20 June 1756 at Fort William. Holwell came from a merchant family with education. He was trained as a doctor and came out to India as a surgeon's mate. In Calcutta, he showed his skills in judicial and revenue administration and became mayor of the settlement as well as the youngest member of the council. After his final return to Britain in 1760, he emerged as something of a specialist in Indian affairs, wrote historical and ethnographic tracts, and became a fellow of the Royal Society. He was keen to display his superior moral and intellectual qualities in comparison with the usual run of greedy adventurers who came out to India in the company's service. He wrote the genuine narrative on, boat the on board the siren in February 1757 on his journey back to Britain from Bengal. By then, Calcutta had been recaptured by Clive's army. Holwell was now feeling much better. He had had, quote, leisure to reflect. And since no one who had survived the night when Fort William fell had written down a detailed narrative, he felt it necessary to do so. The annals of the world, he believed, cannot produce an incident like it in any degree or proportion to all the dismal circumstances attending it. His account might, he said, offer hope and confidence to such as may hereafter fall under like trials by giving them an instance that we ought never to despair when innocence and duty have been the causes of our distress. By the time Holwell's narrative was published, Siraj Dola had been defeated at Polashi and killed. 
Robert Clive and the East India Company were in full charge of political affairs in Bengal. Quote, figure to yourself, my friend, if possible, the situation of 140, so 46 wretches, exhausted by continual fatigue and action, thus crammed together in a cube of about 18 feet in a close, sultry night in Bengal, shut up to the eastward and southward by dead walls and by a wall and door to the north open only to the westward by two windows strongly barred with iron from which we could receive scarce any the least circulation of fresh air. Holwell and the other European defenders of the fort had been ordered at about eight o'clock that night into the Black Hole prison by the Nawab's guards and forced through the only door. Somewhat improbably, considering the smallness of the room in the relation to the numbers that had to be packed inside, quote, like one agitated wave impelling another, we were obliged to give way and enter. The rest followed like a torrent, few amongst us, the soldiers excepted, having the least idea of the dimensions or nature of a place we had never before seen. So begins a tale of innocence. It was not Sirajuddaullah Holwell is careful to point out who had ordered them to be locked up in that particular room. What followed, he says, was the result of revenge and resentment in the breasts of the guards to whose custody we were delivered. Before he went, Holwell had been approached by Leach, the company's smith, who offered to escort Holwell to a boat in which he could escape. Quote, I thanked him in the best terms I was able but told him it was a step I could not prevail on myself to take, as I should thereby very ill repay the attachment of the gentlemen and the garrison had shown to me, and that I was resolved to share their fate, be it what it would. Clearly, Holwell, Holwell is keen to emphasize that he was not like the other officials who had deserted the fort. This was, after all, also a tale of duty. In his attitude and mental poise, Holwell was also utterly different from most of his fellow prisoners. They were far too susceptible to, quote, the violence of passions, whereas he knew immediately, quote, that the only chance we had left for sustaining this misfortune and surviving the night was the preserving of a calm mind and quiet resignation to our fate. This indeed is the dominant theme of his narrative, not the perfidy of Siraj, or the cruelty of his guards, but the descent of a crowd of ordinary European men placed in a situation of dangerous adversity into mindless disorder and his own heroic struggle to retain control and discipline over his body. Looking out of the window, Holwell noticed that an old guard, quote, seemed to carry some compassion for us in his countenance. He spoke to him and offered to pay him a thousand rupees the next day if he would arrange to shift half of the prisoners to another room. The guard went away and came back to announce that the Nawab had gone to sleep and no one dared wake him up. At this time, Holwell noticed that having perspired profusely, everyone was inflicted by a raging thirst, which, quote, increased in proportion as the body was drained of its moisture. Once again, Holwell could only be a mute witness to the folly of his ignorant fellow prisoners. They decided to take off their clothes. Quote, in a few minutes, I believe every man was stripped, myself, Mr. Court, and the two wounded young gentlemen by me accepted. For a little time, they flattered themselves with having gained a mighty advantage. When everyone was clamoring for water, the old guard took pity 
and ordered some skins of water. Holwell immediately knew this would have fatal effects. Quote, this was what I dreaded. I foresaw it would prove the ruin of the final chance left us and essayed many times to speak to him privately to forbid its being brought, but the clamor was so loud it became impossible. Paradoxically then, a humane gesture from a prison guard brought on the destruction of a crowd of thoughtless prisoners unable to rise above their animal instincts. As soon as the water arrived, there was a mad rush for it. Those near the window filled up their hats to the full, but quote, there ensued such violent struggles and frequent contests to get at it that before it reached the lips of anyone, there would be scarcely a small teacup full left in them. The insufficient supply of water only increased the, the thirst. Quote, the confusion now became general and horrid. Several quitted the other window, the only chance they had for life, to force their way to the water, and the throng and press upon the window was beyond bearing. Many forcing their passage from the further part of the room pressed down those in their way who had less strength and trampled them to death. Holwell, however, was still happy in the quote, still happy in the same calmness of mind I had preserved the whole time. Death I expected as unavoidable and only lamented its slow approach. He refused to drink any water. Instead, quote, I kept my mouth moist from time to time by sucking the perspiration out of my shirt sleeves and catching the drops as they fell, like heavy rain from my head and face. You can hardly imagine how unhappy I was if any of them escaped my mouth. Soon he discovered that the man next to him, naked like the rest of the prisoners, was also sucking his sleeve. Quote, after I detected him, I had ever the address to begin on that sleeve first when I thought my reservoirs were sufficiently replenished and our mouths and noses often met in the contest. There was a hint of scientific explanation here because Holwell seemed to be suggesting that unlike the rest of the crowd, he was aware that the salts in his sweat were more useful in his condition than water. Quote, before I hit upon this happy expedient, I had, in an ungovernable fit of thirst, attempted drinking my own urine, but it was so intensely bitter there was no enduring a second taste, whereas no Bristol water could be more soft or pleasant than what arose from perspiration. The scene inside the prison was one of violent confusion. The prison guards seemed to find this amusing. Holwell was incensed. Quote, can it gain belief that this scene of misery proved entertainment to the brutal wretches without? So, but so it was, and they took care to keep us supplied with water that they might have the satisfaction of seeing us fight for it, and held up lights to the bars that they might lose no part of the inhuman diversion. For Holwell, it was unforgivable that native eyes should have been allowed to witness the descent of a group of Europeans into a state of natural savagery. All he could do by way of retaliation was transfer the attribute of brutality from his benighted compatriots to the amused Indian prison guards. By half past 11, quote, they whose strength and spirits were, or were quite exhausted laid themselves down and expired quietly upon their fellows. Others who had yet some strength and vigor left made a last effort for the windows. Many to the right and left sunk with the violent pressure 
and were soon suffocated. For now, a steam arose from the living and the dead, which affected us in all its circumstances, as if we were forcibly held with our heads over a bowl full of strong, volatile spirit of hartshorn until suffocated. By two o'clock, Holwell felt so exhausted that he pulled out his penknife, determined to slit open his arteries. Quote, when heaven interposed and restored me to fresh spirits and resolution with an abhorrence of the act of cowardice I was just going to commit. Soon, however, he passed out. When day broke, some of the prisoners recognized him by his shirt, buried under a pile of naked dead bodies, and realized he was still alive. In the meantime, the Nawab apparently gave orders that the prisoners be released. Quote, but, oh, sir, what words shall I adopt to tell you the whole that my soul suffered at reviewing the dreadful destruction around me? I will not attempt it, and indeed, tears stop my pen. Holwell was taken to Sirajuddola. After a drink of water, Holwell tried to describe to the Nawab the terrible suffering the prisoners had undergone. Quote, but he stopped me short with telling me he was well informed of great treasure being buried or secreted in the fort and that I was privy to it and if I expected favor, must discover it. Holwell disclaimed all knowledge of any treasure. Frustrated, Siraj ordered him to be taken under guard to Murshidabad. Holwell's trip to Murshidabad as a prisoner was arduous. At every step, he was told he was no longer the chief of Calcutta and that he must obey. As he and three other English prisoners were paraded down the streets of Murshidabad, they were apparently noticed by the old Begum, Aliwardi's widow and Siraj's grandmother, who, taking pity on them, probably interceded with the Nawab on their behalf. The next day, the prisoners were presented before Siraj. Quote, the wretched spectacle we made must, I think, have made an impression on a breast the most brutal, and if he is capable of pity or contrition, his heart felt it then. I think it appeared in spite of him in his countenance. The Nawab ordered that the chains be removed and Holwell and his companions allowed to go wherever they chose. A final point before we leave Holwell's narrative. In the course of his description of the chaotic scenes inside the Black Hole prison, Holwell mentioned a certain naval officer called Carey and added in parentheses, almost as an afterthought, quote, his wife, a fine woman, though country-born, would not quit him and accompanied him into the prison and was one who survived. On the morning of June 21st, after Holwell and three others were ordered to be sent to Murshidabad, the rest of the prisoners were set free, except, says Holwell, Mrs. Carey, who was too young and handsome. Other than this tantalizingly brief clause, not a word more is said about her. Much would be made of Mrs. Carey later. There is no doubt that Holwell had an axe to grind. The civil and military leadership of the settlement had disgracefully abandoned the fort, and Holwell had been left behind to negotiate the inevitable surrender. The temptation would have been overwhelming for him to paint in the most dramatic colors the adversity of his situation and the heroism of his devotion to duty, especially in a tract intended to be read by the company's stockholders and members of the public in Britain. It is also true, as Betty Joseph has recently pointed out, that Holwell's rhetoric repeatedly invokes the fundamental impossibility of representing this founding trauma to protect himself from charges of inaccuracy and inconsistency. 
But a careful reader of the narrative cannot but conclude that the predominant theme is not the brutality of the Bengal Nawab or his soldiers, but the value of mental self-discipline and informed moral judgment in coping with unanticipated disaster. The charge of brutality against Siraj is in the narrative nothing more than a prejudice, assumed as part of the background. He appears impatient and willful, perhaps, but not in any way cruel, and indeed not devoid of compassion. Some of his guards are positively helpful towards the prisoners. As Linda Colley says in her recent book, Captives, Holwell's account was, quote, not the stuff of stirring imperial adventure and had little impact at the time in Britain. I will go further and say that Holwell's tract is actually pedagogical, not accusatory. He was writing to establish what may be called elevated principles of moral discipline as the guide to self-governance for his own people. What the Indians had seen of Europeans that night in Fort William had destroyed every claim of the civilizational superiority of white Christian nations. The task was, Holwell seemed to be saying, the moral education of the British people to make them worthy of ruling over Moors and Gentiles steeped in tyranny and depravity. In making this plea, he was somewhat ahead of his times. It has often been said in the last two centuries that the British acquired the territories of Bengal without ever having planned to do so. The description was turned into a much repeated aphorism by the historian John Seeley, who remarked in 1882, quote, we seem as it were to have conquered and peopled half the world in a fit of absence of mind. Of course, it is necessary to remind ourselves that the idea that empires are founded by single individuals of rare genius is a prejudice we have carried over from older histories of bygone empires. Modern empires like modern capitalism and modern nation states do not have founders, notwithstanding the persistent desire in certain quarters to claim and celebrate them. The founding of the British Empire in India is usually dated June 23, 1757, almost exactly a year after the Black Hole incident. On this day, the East India Company's forces, led by Robert Clive, defeated Siraj Dola on the fields of Polashi and installed Meet Jafar as the first of a series of puppet Nawabs of Murshidabad. The battle was preceded by an inglorious conspiracy between British officials and ministers of the Nawab's court, involving deception, betrayal, forged signatures, and the transfer of unheard of quantities of money and treasure. The conspiracy ensured that about two-thirds of the Nawab's army merely stood by as the so-called revolution in Bengal took place. For the next eight years, the functionaries of the company carried out what can only be described as the unrestrained plunder of Bengal. Company officials sent out private Indian agents into the countryside to trade without paying taxes in virtually every commodity. They used the company's troops to support their private trade against comp competitors and to dictate prices. The scale of some of these private operations is staggering. William Bolts employed 150 Indian agents to manage his personal trade. Archibald Keir employed 13,000 men to manufacture 12,000 tons of salt on his behalf. Profit margins for British traders in Bengal were three to four times what they could have expected in Britain. Yet another means of plunder were the so-called presents to company officials from Indians eager to please them. Robert Clive, who regarded himself as morally superior, 
to his greedy and self-serving compatriots in Bengal, appears to have stayed away from private trade, but took home probably the largest fortune of all, consisting mainly of money, jewels, and precious objects gifted to him, often from the government treasury, by prominent people in India. But Clive was not the only one. Anyone of consequence in the company used his position to ask for and receive presents from Indians he dealt with. Even John Holwell, self-proclaimed model of rectitude and devotion to duty, is on record complaining from Britain in 1763 to Nawab Mir Qasim that he had only received 50,000 rupees of his promised present of 200,000 rupees. It was noted by an official committee in Britain that between 1757 and 1765, presents worth more than two million pounds taken out of Bengal could be actually listed. In 1765, Clive wrote, quote, it is scarcely a hyperbole to say that the whole Mughal Empire is in our hands. He negotiated an agreement with the emperor by which the East India Company acquired the right to collect the land revenues of Bengal. A few years later, he boastfully referred in parliament to the Mughal emperor as, quote, de jure Mughal, de facto nobody at all and to the Nawab of Bengal as, quote, de jure Nawab, de facto, the East India Company's most obedient, humble servant. But the company insisted that sovereignty in Bengal belonged to the Mughal Emperor. The government of William Pitt, the elder, tried to argue that since the territories of Bengal, larger in extent than France and Spain put together, had been acquired by force of arms, they should rightfully belong to the crown and not the company. But the company also had influential supporters in parliament. Indeed, 23% of members of parliament owned East India Company stocks, and at least a dozen had had their elections financed by former company officials. This made the company one of the most powerful interest groups in Britain. In 1767, a compromise was hammered out by which the company agreed to pay an annual sum of 400,000 pounds to the British Crown, in return for which a decision on sovereignty in India was postponed indefinitely. Indeed, no matter what the legal quibbles and deals in Parliament, a historical justification of the conquest of Bengal had been worked out among company officials, expressed most elaborately by Robert Orme in 1763. Unlike the earlier debates over the empire in America, analyzed for us by Richard Koebner, Anthony Bagden, and David Armitage, there was no attempt here to apply the Roman law concepts of dominium and imperium, nor was it possible to claim, in the manner of John Locke, that the British had title to the land in India because they were the first to productively cultivate it. Rather, the historical fiction was that the native inhabitants of India, whom the British then called the Gentoos, were industrious and skilled manufacturers and cultivators, adept at commerce, but naturally servile, inherently incapable of defending themselves with arms. Not surprisingly, they had been conquered and ruled for centuries by warlike Muslim invaders, referred to as Moors, who had imposed a vicious tyranny that was hostile to trade and commerce. The British, drawn into the politics of the country in order to defend their trading interests, had been forced to seize power to protect and promote commerce. There was no promise at this juncture that the British would, under the given conditions, provide better government to Indians. In 1769-70, there was a massive famine in Bengal. Historians estimate that 
a third of the population of Bengal was wiped out, making it one of the worst famines in modern history. Its effects did not show up in the company's revenues, however, because collections from landowners and cultivators were, according to official reports, violently kept up to its former standard. But it was apparent to all informed observers that there was a massive problem building up with the administration of the conquered province of Bengal. In addition, the financial improprieties and incompetence of the East India Company's directors precipitated in 1772 a huge crisis in London banking circles in which a dozen leading banks in the city went under. But by then, a major campaign had been unleashed in the British press against the misrule and corruption of company officials in India and the menace of the returning nabobs. After, banking, after the banking crisis of 1772, the climate was so hostile to the company that most members of parliament seemed to be in a humor to hang both directors and servants. In 1773, Robert Clive, the much celebrated founder of the Indian Empire, was accused in parliament of having abused his powers to illegally acquire vast sums of money. In his defense, Clive told Parliament, consider the situation in the victory at Plassey had placed me. A great prince was dependent on my pleasure. An opulent city lay at my mercy. Its richest bankers bid against each other for my smiles. I walked through vaults which were, which were thrown open to me alone, piled on either hand with gold and jewels. Mr. Chairman, at this moment I stand astonished at my own moderation. After contentious hearings and a night-long debate, he was found to have received presents, but was cleared of any criminal wrongdoing. Eight years later, however, the controversy resumed with no less a figure than Edmund Burke leading the charge in Parliament against the company and its Governor General, Warren Hastings. This is Burke. Through protracted hearings and votes over more than a decade, Parliament debated the charges of high crimes and misdemeanors against Hastings, who claimed Burke had brought the British nation into disgrace. Hastings, he said, was the greatest delinquent that India ever saw. Along with scores of other officials of the company who had misused their powers to prey upon the unfortunate and plundered inhabitants of India, Hastings had imbibed Eastern corruption. Quote, this was the golden cup of, ab of abominations. This the chalice of fornications, of rapine, usury, and oppression, which was held out by the gorgeous, gorgeous eastern harlot, which so many of the people, so many of the nobles of this land, had drained to the last drinks. The real danger was that eastern corruption was now making its way into British society. Quote, they marry into your families, they enter into your senate, they ease your estates by loans, this was the dangerous underside of commerce that threatened to destroy virtue. Burke was determined to prevent such a disaster. In his defense, Hastings invoked difference. India was not Britain, he said. It could not be ruled by British principles. If he had, in his own conduct, deviated from British norms, it was because Indian conditions demanded it. Quote, the whole history of Asia is nothing more than precedents to prove the invariable exercise of arbitrary power. Sovereignty in India implies nothing else than despotism. Burke, in his reply, was merciless. Quote, These gentlemen have formed a plan of geographic morality. 
by which the duties of men in public and in private situations are not to be governed by their relations to the great governor of the universe or by their relations to men, but by climates, degrees of longitude and latitude. This was a license for corruption and abuse of power. My lords, Perk thundered, we contend that Mr. Hastings, as a British governor, ought to govern upon British principles. We call for that spirit of equity, that spirit of justice, that spirit of safety, that spirit of protection, which ought to characterize every British subject in power. And upon these and these principles only, he will be tried. In sum, Burke's claim was that Indians had their own ancient constitution, their own laws, their own legitimate dynasties. A British governor, ruling by true British principles, ought to have respected those institutions and customs, and not, like Hastings, arrogantly cast them aside in order to introduce British forms with the substance of despotism. Empire had to become a sacred responsibility, a, pet a patriotic duty answerable to the nation. It had to become a business not of intrigue and loot, but of virtue. As it happened, Hastings was, in the end, exonerated. But by bringing him to trial in Parliament, Burke, as Nicholas Dirks has argued in his recent book, quote, made empire safe for British sovereignty. It was not only no longer threatened by empire, but was simultaneously autonomous from it, and yet able to encompass it through the justificatory logic that the good despotism it, it provided was much better than the bad despotism India had known before conquest. I will argue that the modern state as we know it today was normalized in the early 19th century. The experience of empire in its earlier incarnation of the conquest and settlement of America, as well as the new possessions in the East, is fundamental to this process. In fact, I'm willing to speculate that the modern state as we know it today would have looked very different had the European powers not had overseas empires. The key conceptual move was to think of all forms of government everywhere as comparable within a single universal normative framework. Some crucial theoretical instruments were provided in the 19th century by British utilitarian thinkers. Writing his Principles of Morals and Legislation in 1789, Jeremy Bentham announced that the, that the methods and standards of legislation he was proposing were, quote, alike applicable to the laws of all nations. More interestingly, in an essay on the influence of time and place in matters of legislation, written sometime in the second decade of the 19th century, Bentham proposed the following method. I take England, then, for a standard. And referring everything to this standard, I inquire, what are the deviations which it would be requisite to make from this standard in giving to another country such a tincture as any other country may receive without prejudice from English laws. The problem as it stands at present is the best possible laws for England being established in England require the variations which it would be necessary to make in those of any other given country in order to render them the best laws possible with reference to that country. In providing an instructive example of this method, Bentham chose a country that presented, quote, as strong a contrast with England as possible. Quote, such a contrast we seem to have in the province of Bengal. Diversity of climate, mixture of inhabitants, 
natural productions, force of the country, present laws, manners, customs, religion of the inhabitants, every circumstance on which a difference in the point in question can be grounded, as different as can be, to a lawgiver who, having been bred up with English notions, shall have learned how to accommodate his laws to the circumstances of Bengal, no other part of the globe can present any difficulty. Cultural difference here is no longer radically incommensurable. Rather, it can now be understood as deviation from a standard and hence normalized. All deviations between states are comparable according to the same measure. States can be divided into ranks and grades. Moreover, once normalized, deviations could be tracked over time. The deviation of a state from the norm could close or widen. This, I believe, was a key conceptual innovation in the theory of the modern state in which the history of empire played a central role. The history of British India by James Mill, virtually canonical in the field of European knowledge and Indian history in the early 19th century, was first published in 1817. Mill was a utilitarian and a reformist thinker in the new Benthamite tradition. His chapter on the capture of Calcutta by Sirajuddola mentions the black hole incident, but frames it within a paradigm of social ethics that would have been incomprehensible to the 18th century characters we have encountered so far. Mill describes the confusion and disorder surrounding the retreat from the fort on 19 June 1756 as bordering on criminal negligence of duty, but something that should have been expected given the lack of proper principles of governance in the affairs of the East India Company at the time. After the surrender of the fort, Mill says, following Holwell's narrative, Sirajadola did not show any cruelty to the British captives. Quote, when evening came, however, it was a question with the guards to whom they were entrusted how they might be secured for the night. Some search was made for a convenient apartment, but none was found, upon which information was obtained of a place which the English themselves had employed as a prison. Into this, without any further inquiry, they were impelled. It was unhappily a small, ill-aired and unwholesome dungeon called the Black Hole, and the English had their own practice to thank for suggesting it to the officers of the Subadar as a fit place of confinement. In a footnote, Mill here digresses on the subject of British penal practices, a favorite subject of Benthamite reformers. Quote, the atrocities of English imprisonment at home too naturally reconciled Englishmen abroad to the use of dungeons, of black holes. What had they to do with a black hole? Had no black hole existed, as none ought to exist anywhere, least of all in the sultry and unwholesome climate of Bengal, those who perished in the black hole of Calcutta would have experienced a different fate. This was the intellectual climate in which Holwell's black hole monument was demolished in 1821. It has been speculated that its continuance had become politically undesirable, either as likely to wound the sensibilities of our fellow native subjects or to recall prominently at the seat of government a hideous disaster to British arms, which it would be wiser to locally bury in oblivion. However, it is also likely that the inappropriate use by local people contributed to the decision to pull down the monument. As an early 19th century illustration by James Bailey Fraser that shows the original monument drew the following comment from a 20th century British historian of Calcutta. Quote, 
The obelisk in the last named engraving looks at least 50 feet high and is not surrounded by any railings. It seems in consequence to be the lounging place for lower class loafers of all sorts who gossip squatting around and against it. A barber is seen plying his craft in the favorite posture of these Eastern experts. His back is to the base of the monument while overhead is stretched his outspread cloth between the upper ledge of the pedestal and three or four stakes. The tent thus improvised shelters the operator and a few of his customers. All this unsightliness may explain why the historic structure had a few years before the date of this engraving disappeared from the city of palaces. In any case, we have a report in the Calcutta Journal of 1821, edited by the controversial free thinker James Silk Buckingham, announcing, quote, the monument over the well-remembered black hole of Calcutta is at length taken down and we think should long ago have been demolished. The combination of utilitarianism and evangelical Christianity that brought in the era of high imperialism in the 19th century has been well discussed, most notably in the classic study by Eric Stokes. This was when representative government was gradually declared the normal form of the modern nation state, applicable universally as the desirable norm. But actual historical conditions might require the making of exceptions. Indeed, the theoretical foundation of the modern empire as defined in the 19th century now rested precisely in the power to declare the colony as an exception. Race, religion, language, geography, historical tradition, any of these could be the criterion for deciding that colonies inhabited by non-European peoples were not ready for representative government. But difference too was normalized within a universal framework of comparative government where difference was now conceived as deviation from the norm. Deviation was susceptible to correction over time as both utilitarians and evangelists agreed. Thus was born in the 19th century the modern civilizing mission, empire as a pedagogical project. If we are indeed prepared to see metropolis and colony as part of a single history, as the new historians of empire are arguing today, then we must not be content merely with showing intersections and crossings in both directions. We must take seriously the history of 19th century imperialism as a constitutive part of the history of the modern nation state in Europe and North America. If we do this, I suggest, I suggest we may not be surprised, as Bernard Porter has recently claimed to be, by the general ignorance among 19th century Britons about the empire, or indeed by the wide gulf that seemed to separate domestic from colonial policy. If we keep the framework of norm, deviation, and exception in mind, we will see why, alongside the growing power of the bourgeoisie and the extension of the suffrage in British domestic policies, Colonial government in the 19th century was run by men from the upper middle classes with a university education in the classics, suffused by a patrician spirit of virtue that had disappeared from British domestic politics. We will see why a paternal authoritarianism could be justified for the colonies with such moral fervor and why its frequently arbitrary policies could even be concealed from an allegedly uninformed and uncomprehending metropolitan public opinion. The black hole of Calcutta would have been forgotten had it not been for the essayist skills of Thomas Babington Macaulay. 
1840, he wrote an essay on Robert Clive that was read by every English reading schoolchild for the next 100 years. This essay, as Kate Telcher has recently pointed out, turned the black hole story into a founding myth of empire. Speaking on the Hastings affair, Edward Burke had said in 1788, quote, there is a secret veil to be drawn over the beginning of all governments. They had their origins as the beginnings of all such things have had in some matters that had as good be covered by obscurity. In the early 19th century, at the time when, for instance, Holwell's monument was pulled down, there was, we might say, a Burkean consensus on drawing the veil over the sordid story of the conquest of Bengal. By 1840, the mood had changed. Quote, I have always thought it strange, began Macaulay, that while the history of the Spanish Empire in America is familiarly known to all the nations of Europe, the great actions of our countrymen in the East should, even among ourselves, excite so little interest. Yet the victories of Cortes were gained over savages who had no letters, who were ignorant of the use of metals, who had not broken in a single animal to labor. The people of India, when we subdued them, were 10 times as numerous as the Americans, whom the Spaniards vanquished, and were at the same time quite as highly civilized as the victorious Spaniards. It might have been expected that every Englishman who takes any interest in any part of history would be curious to know how a handful of his countrymen, separated from their home by an immense ocean, subjugated in the course of a few years one of the greatest empires in the world. Yet, unless we greatly err, this subject is to most readers not only insipid, but positively distasteful. Macaulay's essay was tragic biography and heroic history. The black hole played the crucial part in it. India in the middle of the 18th century, he wrote, was, quote, tainted with all the vices of oriental despotism, with a succession of rulers sunk in indolence and debauchery, chewing balm, fondling concubines, and listening to buffoons. Macaulay betrayed a wholly new historical sensibility when he asked the question, in what was this confusion to end? Was the strife to continue during centuries? This was when an utterly unexpected and wholly providential chain of events unfolded. Siraj, quote, one of the worst specimens of the Oriental despot, committed that great crime, memorable for its singular atrocity, memorable for the tremendous retribution by which it was followed. Turning Holwell's narrative into a story of the criminal cruelties of Oriental rulers, Macaulay made Siraj the chief perpetrator of a horrible atrocity. Having ordered the forced confinement of the unfortunate prisoners at the point of the sword, the despot was unavailable for the rest of the night for any appeals because, quote, he was sleeping off his debauch. In the morning, he treated the survivors with such execrable cruelty. And the mysterious Mrs. Carey, now called, quote, an Englishwoman, was, according to Macaulay, quote, placed in the harem of the prince at Murshidabad. What happened next? Quote, the cry of the whole settlement was for vengeance. The cry was heard in Madras and London, leading to the dispatch of Clive and his small army to Bengal. The rest, we might say quite accurately, is history. It is to history, then, that Macaulay turned in judging Clive. He admitted that Clive, quote, considered Oriental politics as a game in which nothing was unfair, 
And although an honorable English gentleman and a soldier, no sooner was he matched against an Indian intriguer than he became himself an Indian intriguer and descended without scruple to falsehood. In doing this, Clive was altogether in the wrong. There can be no moral defense of his conduct. But history must give such men, quote, a more than ordinary measure of indulgence, because they must be judged not as their contemporaries judged them, but as they will be judged by posterity. This judgment would be that Clive was a supremely intelligent and valorous agent of the providential acquisition by Britain of its Indian empire. His faults were the faults of a bygone era. Now, quote, a great quantity of wealth is made by English functionaries in India, but no single functionary makes a very large fortune. And what is made is slowly, hardly, and honestly earned. The institutions of British rule in India had been reformed. Empire was now safe from its own infamous origins. The secret veil could now be lifted. It is vitally important, I think, to emphasize the novelty of the empires instituted in the 19th century because they, in, they, because they invented and put in place technologies of government that were part of an entirely modern regime of power. Thus, the fact that the British Empire in India was in the 19th century so crucially dependent on collaborating Indians, from soldiers to merchants to landlords to clerks, was not a limit on imperial power at all, but precisely the mark of its productive efflorescence. It is equally important, I believe, to take seriously the myth of imperial hegemony, not because the actual British experience of empire was homogeneous, which it was not, but because actual practices were effectively instituted that sustained and made credible the myth of invincible imperial hegemony. The history of the Black Hole Monument is a perfect example. The campaign to restore the monument began in earnest in the 1880s. H. E. Busteed published a history of Calcutta recounting in detail the history of the black hole and bemoaning the fact that there was no commemorative structure, quote, sacred to those few faithful found among the faithless. He also claimed that Mrs. Carey, quote, now of a fair mestitia color with correct regular features, which gave evident marks of beauty, was not the only woman in the black hole. There were probably three or four others even though he doubted that she had been consigned to the Nabab's harem. Excavations were carried out in 1883 among the ruins of the old fort and the foundations of, um, uh, and the, foundations of the prison identified. In 1902, Curzon took it upon himself to rebuild at considerable personal expense the monument at the corner of Delazi Square. Alluding to the development of empire in the century and a half since that terrible night in 1756, he called the victims the authors of a wonderful chapter in the history of mankind. As Thomas Metcalf has described recently, Curzon certainly had no doubts about the nobility as well as the legitimacy of his civilizing mission. But by then, Indian opinion was in no mood to countenance the founding myth of empire. In 1896, Bhola Nath Chandra published an article in which he questioned whether it was possible to pack 146 humans into a room 18 feet square, quote, even if it were possible to closely pack them like the seeds of a pomegranate. He concluded, quote, geometry contradicting arithmetic gives the lie to the story. It is little better than a bogey against which was raised 
an uproar of pity. In 1898, the historian Okkay Kumar Moitro published an influential book on Siraj al-Dawla, in which he challenged the European accounts of the Nawab's misrule and cruelties. In 1916, he was joined by a British schoolmaster called J.H. Little in the Calcutta Historical Society in pronouncing that the story of the black hole was, quote, a gigantic hoax, provoking a long and angry response from Curzon himself, then living in retirement in Britain. But by then, Bengali poets and playwrights had turned Siraj into a tragic hero, the last sovereign ruler of Bengal. The founding myth of empire had been turned into the founding calumny. In 1940, there was an elected provincial ministry in Bengal led by a coalition of Muslim political parties. Led by Subhash Chandra Bose, then banished from the Indian National Congress, Various students' organizations began a campaign for the removal of Curzon's Black Hole Monument from the central square of the city. The movement aroused a surprising response, spreading quickly from district to district and, involving and invoking sentiments extremely unusual for those days of sectarian conflict of a joint front of Hindus and Muslims against a colonial canard. Pressurized by its own constituents, the government of Fazlul Haq decided in July 1940 to remove the monument to St. John's Church, where it still stands in profound obscurity. On, one cannot blame the fickleness of popular memory for the obliteration of the black hole. In 1947, the famous Indian historian Jadunath Sarkar claimed that Holwell's story was an exaggeration and that the total number of prisoners who died was probably 60. In 1962, Brijan Gupta published what is considered the definitive historical work on the subject, in which he considered every available piece of evidence and came to the conclusion that the number of dead was 53, among whom many were likely to have been injured from the three-day siege, a not unusual incident in 18th century warfare. The historian's consensus today can be gauged from the fact that the volume published in 1987 in the new Cambridge History of India on the conquest of Bengal does not even list the black hole in its index. It is not worthy of even a mention. Has the star of empire then finally collapsed into a black hole? I doubt it. In fact, I entirely endorse Linda Colley's salutary reminder that the imperial impulse is still with us today. What I must add, however, as a contrary thought, is that the consequences of the imperial impulse are never benign, just as resistance to it is also frequently violent and mindless. Today, in the aftermath of Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, the killing of John Charles de Menezes in the London underground, and the rendition of terror suspects for aggressive interrogation, I leave you to ponder over that disturbing thought. Thank you.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.